0: welcome to the vanguard bible church podcast the current sermon series is entitled authentic walk for more information about vanguard bible church please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on sunday mornings at 9 a.m at freedom middle school in northwest bakersfield we hope you enjoy today's message when a football team takes the field on a saturday or sunday afternoon to face an opponent, an opponent, excuse me, it is the culmination of hours of study and practice and training. Over the course of the previous week, a uh, film on the opponent has been dissected with excruciating detail, and uh, drills have been run to sharpen skills, and counterplays have been developed to work against the opponent's offense and defense. When game day arrives, the team dresses for battle, and they warm up, and they take the field for the game. And The coach usually repeats a succinct summary of what the players have learned over the previous week, what their goals are, and then he calls plays and tells the team to go execute the plays that they have practiced. However, if we were to watch a football game, And see a team dress for the game They've studied they've practiced if we were to see them go out on the field and huddle and then just stay in the huddle We would think that was odd Like if they just got together on the field and huddled and then went Man, that was a great huddle, good job. Man, you were right, perfect in a good spot. Look, we made an almost perfect circle and everything. There was hardly any sunlight coming in. Great job, guys. Pats in certain places and high fives and fist bumps and forearm bashes, right? We would would think that's kind of odd because no team would get dressed up for a game, take the field and huddle only to congratulate themselves for the way they huddled. And it would certainly raise the question, Well, then what was the point of all the studying you did last week? Well, in the final four verses of 1 John, the apostle does three things that most football coaches do before a game. John repeats a succinct summary of all that we've learned in the previous 101 verses. He calls the play, and then he expects us to go out into the world and execute the plays that we've learned. According to John, a church that studies and huddles but never implements what they've learned on the playing field raises the question then, what was the point of all that studying? What what were we doing? So, we're continuing our series today in 1 John called Authentic Walk. And I'd like to invite you to open up God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 5. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands, and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We want to make sure you have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. You can take out the sermon note insert uh, that's in the worship folder, which I have an outline so you can follow along and take notes. That outline's also designed to give you hope that someday I will be done with this message, that there's an end coming, it's in sight, and once he runs out of blanks, he'll have nothing else to say, so... Our theme verse for this series has been 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. If you haven't underlined them in your Bible or highlighted them already, I want to encourage you to do so. They summarize and kind of uh, gather and, and, and bring together everything that John's been trying to say. And so let's read them out loud together off the screen behind me, or you can use your sermon note handout. Whoever says, I know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Throughout this series, we've heard John saying, this venerable ministry veteran, over and over again in different ways, one simple truth, real Christians really walk with Christ. He's also been telling us the inverse of that simple truth, which is anyone who professes faith in Christ but does not walk with him, is not really a Christian. And John doesn't want us to talk about the Lord by just, excuse me, John doesn't want to just have us walk with the Lord. He wants us to do it by walking in his word. Thus, what we're going to talk about today is this big idea. Real Christ followers walk in the truth so they don't believe lies. So so in other words, you can't, Try or claim that you're walking with Christ and do so apart from walking in his word. They are intricately connected. The way you walk with Christ is by being in his word and learning and knowing it. Because real Christ followers love the Lord, they also love his word. And because they love his word, they constantly feed their mind and their soul with a steady diet in the word. And because his word is true, real Christ followers love what Jesus loves, they hate what Jesus hates, they hear what Jesus sees, or excuse me, hears what he hears, and they see what he sees. And they think the way he thinks. As we look at these final four verses here in chapter five, John's gonna answer a couple questions for us. The first being, what lies will the deceiver try to tell me as I walk with the Lord? And another question I think he's going to answer is, what can keep me from loving Jesus the way I should? And so with that, if you would, look at verse 18, where John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Here's the first point in your outline. It's this, we know pursuing holiness proves conversion. We know that pursuing holiness proves conversion. John finishes his letter here in these four verses with three we know statements. I've summarized, or excuse me, I've simplified them into our three main points this morning, the first one being we know pursuing holiness proves conversion. Now, when we do inductive Bible study, you've heard me say before it's important to look for pronouns, verbs, and repeated terms. You've already heard me mention in earlier messages in this series that one of John's favorite words is no, K N O as in knowledge. <coughs> he uses the term 20 to 30 times throughout his letter, depending on which Bible translation you have. And when John says, we know, or I know, or God knows, or you should know, he's referring to a spiritual knowledge or a firsthand experience with God. Interestingly, John uses we know 13 times in this letter. Three of which are in today's verses. Next, notice the pronoun that he uses. We know that everyone, not some born again Christians, not most born again Christians, everyone, he says. It's all inclusive and exclusive. He's not referring to the perfection of human effort, but instead, rather, I think he's kind of giving a high five to the Holy Spirit here by saying that the Spirit's work in a genuine born-again Christian is so certain and so complete that that person doesn't continue to have a life dominated by sin. They're no longer known for their sin like an unbeliever is. Next, John says, we know that everyone does not keep on sinning. He said something very similar in chapter 3, verse 6. You can look at that real quick in your Bibles. In chapter 3, verse 6, John said, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And so he's repeating, like the football coach, he's repeating the play again. Repetition happens for a reason in the Scriptures, It means that the Spirit inspired the Scriptures, and thus, if there is repetition, the Spirit inspired the repetition. And just as you repeat things to your kids and grandkids until they finally get it, the Spirit repeats things in the Word until we get it. So, John, though, it's important to understand this, he's not saying those who are born again will be perfect. Instead, he's saying that those who are born again will not have a life dominated or paralyzed by sin. Real Christ followers are known for their progress in overcoming sin, not their perfection. The apostles are also trying to refute the false gospel that teaches that a person can confess faith in Christ but still love their sin. John's just wanting to blow that up. No, 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 not true. I think he repeats this truth a number of times in this letter because he hates the fact that some unbelievers were claiming to be believers and some believers were acting like unbelievers. And he wants to stop that. In the sunset of his life, it's the mid-90s in the first century, he's 50 years removed from walking with Jesus and serving with Jesus. He's seen all of his friends and relatives die. He knows his time is coming to an end. And before he leaves this earth, he wants to try and urge believers to walk with Christ and be distinct from the world, and he wants to shut down and shut up those that are claiming to know Christ that don't know him. Now, as we work our way through this passage, I'm going to give you a lie from the adversary with each point today. Because I think John is indirectly trying to refute the lie with a truth. And so here's the lie from the adversary that John has been trying to dismantle. And it's this. Every profession is a conversion. It sounds good, but it is not true. There is no Biblical evidence for that at all. And John, in just this letter itself, has proved that. Every profession is a conversion. That's what the adversary wants us to think. Oh, they say they're a Christian. They must be a Christian. John says, no. No, no, no. Now, we learned a couple of weeks ago that every born-again believer receives the indwelling Holy Spirit at the point of their conversion. And the Spirit proves that he dwells in a believer by enabling him or her to do the following things. Now, this is a little bit of review from a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to go through this really quickly. Just a few signs of the indwelling Spirit in the heart of a genuine believer are this. First of all, the old life dies so that a new life in Christ can live. There's a transformation. They are completely changed by the decision to receive Christ. And the signs of that transformation show up shortly after the decision. It's not, it's not like, you know, night and day, but you can start to see the person's attitude and thinking and appetites are changing. They don't want to do the same things they used to do before they knew Christ. They want to start doing other things, like not missing church, for example. I remember that's how I was. You couldn't get me out of bed on a Sunday morning Uh, when I was in college, before I knew Christ. But then after I got saved, man, I was up early, eager to go to church. Now, if that's not a sign of a miracle that took place, I don't know what is, because college students don't get up on Sunday mornings, usually. Here's another proof of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. He enables the new believer to have a hatred of sin and a love for holiness. Not, Not just other people's sin, their own sin. See, it's easy to hate other people's sin, isn't it? Because, especially if it's committed against us. But a sign of the Holy Spirit's indwelling is that you hate your own sin and what it does to your life and how it hurts other people. Jesus said the Holy Spirit only says what the Father once said and only does what the Father wants done. And since the Father hates sin but loves holiness, the Holy Spirit will cause those he indwells to feel the same. Next, Another sign of the Spirit's indwelling is he enables the new believer to have a hunger for the Scriptures. Someone who has been born again craves God's Word so they can grow closer to the Lord. This is why there are food metaphors in the Scriptures about the Scriptures. Such as milk. The apostles called it solid food. And meat. And Jesus called it bread. Bread. Thus, if you claim to know Christ, but you have no desire to learn the Scriptures, it raises the question, have you really been born again? Because you can't be born again and not have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, God's Word says you'll want to know His Word. Next, uh, the fourth fruit, or excuse me, indicator or symptom of the Holy Spirit's indwelling is increasing uh, fruits of the Spirit, Galatians Chapter 5, verses 22-23. Because the heart has changed and the Holy Spirit has moved in, the regenerated, the regenerated Christ follower experiences emotions that they only were able to experience temporarily before their conversion. Paul lists these out in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, here's the lie that the adversary tries to tell us, though, about the Spirit's indwelling and about conversion that I think John wants to address here. One of the other lies is this. You must overcome me with your own strength. The adversary wants us to think we have to overcome him in his efforts to tempt us into sin with our own strength. And John's saying, no, 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 no. Not true. Real Christ followers walk in the truth so they don't believe lies. And so the Lord knows, and John knows, that we lack the power on our own to resist sin and to pursue holiness. But this weakness of ours gives the Lord another opportunity to show off his strength. You see, whatever the Father asks us to do, he enables us to do. Well, how does he do that? Well, John says it in verse 18. He who was born of God protects him. This is one of the ways the Lord helps us overcome the evil one. John is referencing Jesus here. In order to help us pursue holiness, the Father has provided a protection detail from the Son himself. John uses the Greek word, it's an interesting word, it's tereo here, which means to take care of, to guard, or to keep in the same state. Understanding the meaning of this Greek word, um, protection, or to protect him, it's important so that we don't misunderstand what kind of protection we're getting. He protects us from losing our salvation. The adversary can't take that from us once we have it. He protects us from losing our relationship with the Lord. And he protects us from demon possession. A born-again believer cannot be possessed by a demon. The Holy Spirit doesn't move out or move over to make room for a demon to move in because he's more powerful than any demon. Here's another thing that the Lord does to, to enable us to pursue holiness. Uh, and then as John says in verse 18, the evil one does not touch him. Now, the scope of this protection that's being offered by the Lord is further revealed by the Greek word that's used, touch. It, it's hapto in the Greek, it, it means to lay hold of or to grasp onto somebody. It means that the evil one cannot snatch us out of Jesus' hands but he may land a few blows. We see this in the life of Job. God granted the adversary permission to afflict Job, which the Lord eventually used for good in Job's life. His relationship with the Lord was intact the whole time. In fact, it even deepened at the end of Job's trial, or season of trial. John probably reminds us of these boundaries of his protection at the end of this letter, so that we won't blame the evil one for our sin. You know, there's some people that say the devil made me do it or it wasn't my fault. But another reason John may say this is that he, want, he, does, he doesn't want us to use the adversary as an excuse to give up on pursuing holiness. Oh, I'm just so tired. I'm just so tired. The adversary's just been beating me down, beating me down. I just, I'm going to give up, I'm going to stop trying to grow. John I think he wants to encourage us uh, to to counter those those temptations by saying no 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 you're protected and the adversary can't touch you he can just breeze by you though bump you a little bit the lord has promised to provide what we need so that we need nothing else to become what he wants Have you ever seen a, um, you know, I'm thinking of these uh, Secret Service movies or uh, mafia movies where a witness is put into a witness protection program because they're going to testify against the mob. And so they're put under protective custody and then taken away to a safe house. Now the purpose of the safe house is to basically keep them out of public view so that the mafia can't obviously take out the witness before the trial. Now, just imagine what, what would happen if a material witness decided to leave the safe house, stroll down the street to the casino where the mafia is, and go, hey guys, here I am. That probably wouldn't end up well for him, right? Well, of course not, because that's the, the, the witness, and they don't do that, usually the movies. And that's because... The witness knows in order to have the benefit of the protection that's been provided for them, they have to abide or remain in the safe house. And the same is true for the believer. We're only covered with the protection that Jesus provides if we abide in him. And that is another word that John likes to use often, to remain, to spend time with him. So here's a couple of applications from verse 18 that come to mind. The first being, consider a person's life more important than their profession. Just as doctors... Diagnose the physical condition of patients by looking at symptoms and running tests. Believers need to discern the spiritual condition of others by looking for signs of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This includes not just our friends and our neighbors, but our closest relatives as well. This is important because the call to believe and the New Testament has always been a call to possess the faith, not just profess it. So consider their life and look for fruits of the Spirit. Next, abide in Christ. What do we do with what we just read in verse 18? It's a reminder to abide in Christ. Doing so provides the protection you need from the adversary and the power you need to pursue holiness. To abide means to worship with him, at least weekly, to spend time in his word and prayer daily, and to depend on him hourly, and to rest in him minutely. And yes, that's a word. I looked it up last night and checked it. It looks like minutely, but you can say it minutely to refer to minute by minute. I learned that last night. That was pretty fun, looking that up in the dictionary. So, applications. Consider the person's life more important than their profession. Look for fruits of the Spirit, and then abide in Christ. Look at verse 19 with me. Next, John says, here's another we know statement. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here's point number two in your outline. The second truth I think John's trying to tell us is that we know unbelievers can't help but sin. They can't help but sin. John gives a second affirmation here that builds on the first one. Except this one includes a comparison of two people groups. Those that have Christ as their Lord and Savior and those that do not. Notice that he leaves no middle ground here as well. The whole world, all-inclusive, lies in, or depending on which translation you have, under the power of the evil one. Therefore, in contrast to the genuine believers who are under the protection of Jesus in verse 18, unbelievers, in verse 19, are still in bondage to sin. And blinded by the adversary. The New Testament teaches that unbelievers are blinded from hearing the gospel message and they lack the power to say no to sin. They can't resist temptation. They don't have the spiritual resources needed to do it. And so here's the lie the adversary tells us. Unbelievers should act like and think like Christians. Unbelievers should act and think like Christians. That's the lie the adversary wants to tell us. But it's not possible, and it's not true. You see, without being regenerated and receiving the indwelling Holy Spirit, unbelievers are not capable of understanding the Word of God, seeing the foolishness of sin and the wickedness in their own hearts. These scriptural truths should change the way that we look at the world and the way we see and watch the news. For example, expecting unbelievers to act like Christians or think like Christians would be like, well, I don't know, as frustrating as expecting a newborn baby to walk. Walk! What's wrong with you? Well, I was just born yesterday. <laughs> They're not capable of doing it physically. Or, or, or it'd be as silly as expecting a five-year-old to know how to drive. They're not developmentally there yet where they can do that. But here's something I've been observing in American evangelicalism the last few years and in our culture as I, as I watch the news, and that is that when we expect unbelievers to act and think like Christ followers, we end up fighting for Christian causes and ideologies instead of proclaiming the gospel. And that's exactly what the evil one wants. Because the evil one, here's what I he The adversary, did you know the adversary doesn't care how many people we convert to a political party, to a point of view, or a social cause. Just don't convert them to Christ. He does not want that. So if he can get Christ followers to start blogging and posting on social media and arguing about why certain things are wrong and why this needs to change and why things aren't the way they used to be, the adversary is like, "Yes! Please do that. Just don't bring up Jesus' name. Don't bring up repentance and faith in Christ and forgiveness because I don't want them to know about that." Here's the application. Hold forth the gospel instead of ideology. Hold forth the gospel instead of ideology. Again, don't get frustrated when unbelievers act like unbelievers. When I watch the news nowadays, I'm just sort of not shocked anymore. You know, I used to go, oh gosh, idiots, what are they doing? Now I just kind of go... Yeah? That's another reason why Jesus had to come. So, so instead of arguing for a political party and why you're right and why you should have voted like I voted or some social cause or belief system, testify instead to the love, grace, and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that you say and do. And testify to what he's done in your life. Get that out there. Talk about that and see what God does. This is one of the reasons I stopped commenting on political issues on social media a couple years ago. As I realized what I was getting sort of baited into by the adversary, and I, and I realized that complaining about all the problems in the world on social media and, and, getting in and commenting on what, say, my unbelieving high school friends have to say about certain things in the news, was really unproductive in light of eternity. It was unproductive. And I I began to realize the futility of trying to reason with unregenerate minds and the danger of winning an argument only to forfeit my witness. Because, see, I could feel good about a, you know, one of those Facebook diatribes that somebody gets and then, like, Everybody starts commenting on it, and then your phone's just going off all day. Oh, somebody else, somebody, ooh, somebody else comment. Ooh, I like what that guy said. I'm going to like that. No, no, no. Love that. Heart. I'll just like the other one. How come nobody's liked mine yet? Ooh, I got a heart. Somebody in Kansas agrees with me. Cool. I need affirmation. Give me some more, please. I realized that I could win the argument and go, yes, aren't I awesome? I logically defeated somebody, a mere mortal who does not have the cerebral powers that I do and yet accomplish nothing in light of eternity and maybe even cause that person to hate Christians more. Because all i got to do is look at my Facebook feed and my homepage and see that I'm a I'm a believer. I try to leave no doubt about that. So don't misunderstand me here. Social media in and of itself is not the problem. It's not a problem. In fact, I think it can be used for a lot of good things, like spreading the gospel. Social media has been used for good. But it's how we use it that's the problem. So don't expect unbelievers to think like they're born again. Real Christ followers walk in truth so they don't believe lies like expecting unbelievers to act like Christians. They can't until they've repented and received Christ and the indwelling Spirit. Next, look at uh, verses 20 and 21. As John lands the plane here, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All right, here's number three on your outline. We know loving idols keeps us from loving Jesus. We know loving idols keeps us from loving Jesus. Early in my, earlier in my marriage, I discovered that there was a radical difference between how I liked to end a phone call versus how my wife liked to end one. Once in a while, One time, I was out of town at a conference, and so I called home to talk to Maya. It was late in the evening after the kids were in bed, and we talked about our days and stuff. And we, we, Once we had shared about our days... I said, well, i got to get going to bed. I've, I'm in a different time zone. i got an early morning and so on and so forth. But I'll, I love you. I'll call you tomorrow night. To which she responded, wait, I'm not done yet. I said, well, well, what else is there we need to talk about? I thought we covered everything. To which she responded, well, hey, I just wanted to mention yada, 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 yada. Something that could have waited till I got home. It wasn't urgent. To which I said again, hey, I I really need to get going. You know, I'm two hours ahead of you, or I got to get up early, and you know, it's this, you know, it's midnight here, and well, eventually I figured out that she likes to land phone calls like a Boeing 747 coming in on approach. Circle the tower a couple times, (laughs) maybe even touch down the wheels, and then take off again, circle the tower again. If you touch a couple practice landings, you know? And so, so you know, I, I, would, I would be talking to her and be like, oh, okay, so, so, hey, I got to get going. So, hey, you know, and new topic would come up. Oh, okay. And whereas me, I, I prefer to uh, land more like a helicopter. You know, so, like... Um, Meaning that once I sense the conversation has run out of momentum, I, in my mind, start to think, you know, it's time to put this baby down before we run out of gas and somebody gets hurt, okay? Well, I share that to say I was reminded of that as I was reading John's letter here, and he comes to the end, and his last verse is, little children, keep yourself from idols. Boom. Mic drop, over and out. It's, it's one of the oddest endings I've seen in the New Testament because most of the apostles end with some kind of doxology or blessing, you know, grace and peace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, something like that. John's just like, keep yourself from idols. Boom, see ya, you know? And so, so what is that all about? Oh, he's a helicopter lander just like me. That's what it is. That's what I was thinking. Now, am I saying that the way I prefer to end phone calls is biblical? No comment. No comment. So this is probably a reference to the temple of Artemis and other forms of pagan worship that took place in Ephesus. We get a little background on this from Acts chapter 19 and 20. Ephesus was a manufacturing center for pagan idol worship. However, pagan idol worship didn't die when the temple of Artemis was destroyed. Um, This is because idol worship always begins in the heart. It doesn't begin out in the world. It begins in the heart. Centuries after this was written in John, another John, John Calvin, wrote this. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, man is still making idols today. Well, what is an idol today? Well, here's a definition that I've been working on for a few years, and I keep tweaking it. Uh, An idol is anything I love more than Jesus that I'm willing to sin for or fight for in order to get it. An idol is anything that I love more than Jesus, that I'm willing to sin for or fight for, in order to get it. Idols are rarely sinful in and of themselves. Instead, they are often good things that become idols when we love them so much that we sinfully give our affections to the idol that we should be giving to Jesus. And because they look good on the surface, they're easy to fall for and difficult to detect in the human heart. St. Augustine, another patriarch of the church, uh, wrote this. He said, uh, many things such as worry and fear and sadness are smoke from the fires rising from the altars of our idolatry. Biblical counselors have simplified and classified the most common American idols into four categories. They are called source idols because they lie in the crevices of our hearts and generate surface idols that are easier to find and diagnose. Now, there's a typo in your outline, and I apologize for this. It says there's five. There's actually only four. Um, That's my fault. I caught that after I sent the outline to the printers yesterday. So uh, I apologize for that. I'll get that corrected on the PDF that goes on our website. So four idols of the heart that need to be dethroned. Here's what they are. First one, letter A, is the source idol of comfort. We worship comfort when we believe deep in our hearts that our lives only have worth or meaning with a particular pleasure, experience, or quality of life. Comfort idolaters overspend on the latest gadgets, toys, and material things to avoid their greatest fear. They have a few, actually. Their greatest fears are being bored, stressed, or having demands placed on them. Comfort idolaters go to great lengths to avoid taking risks, stepping out in faith, and keeping people at arm's length, because they don't want anybody to disrupt their comfort. And you know as well as I do, people tend to do that. Here's the second one, letter B the source idol of approval. Approval idolaters believe deep in their heart that they must have the love, respect, and acceptance of others or they have no worth. They are people-pleasers that will try to buy, earn, and attract attention from others. This causes them to overcommit, to overpromise and to overstate in order to impress the people they crave affirmation from. Because their greatest fear is rejection, approval idolaters worry about what others think about them and are often willing to disobey God in order to, in order to please people. Or another way to say it is they fear people more than they fear God. So when there's a conflict between what God would want me to do, and it could potentially upset people, they default to people because they crave and they worship the approval from people. It's absolutely sad and ironic because they already have approval and acceptance from the Lord if they know Jesus Christ. So the source idol of comfort, the source idol of approval, the next one, letter C, is the source idol of control. Of control. Control idolaters believe life would be perfect if they could gain mastery over most areas of their life. And because they fear uncertainty and change, people that struggle with this idol go to great lengths to make sure things go exactly as they planned. And they become anxious when things don't. Whereas approval idolaters idolize relationships that feed the need for approval, the control idolaters are willing to sacrifice relationships in order to have the structure they crave. They see people as disposable because they're not getting their fulfillment or meaning of life from people. It's from having control over their domain, whatever that may be. And number four, letter D, the source idol of power. Power idolaters believe their life has meaning and worth if they can influence others, and be successful. They need to influence and to win and to be successful and the need is so strong that they are willing to lie, cheat, steal, or or do whatever in order to be fulfilled. But when they lose, they are angry, they hate themselves, and they hate those that cost them the victory because their identity and their worth is wrapped up entirely in their ability to influence, to win, or be successful. So here's the lie from the adversary about idols. The adversary wants to tell us, you can love more than one God. You can love more than one God. The adversary wants us to believe that we can love and worship comfort or worship approval or control or or power and love Jesus exclusively, too, and be a good Christian. Again, it's not true, though. The Lord says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. He's a jealous God. He wants all of us, and he doesn't want us giving worship that only he deserves to something else, to anyone else or any person. So how do we apply this? When John says, keep yourself from idols, and drops the mic and walks out of the room, what do we do with that? Well, here's an application for you. Identify and dethrone your idols identify and dethrone your idols. Well, how? One of the things that biblical counselors recommend is asking yourself a few probing questions uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit by looking into your heart. And here's a few I'll give you. What do you worry about and fear most? If you can identify what that is deep in your heart, it'll give you a clue as to which source idol you struggle with. Another question to ask is, what do you talk about most or post about most on social media? Because oftentimes what people talk about or post about most is what they fear losing. And it's what they love. Where do you turn for comfort when you're struggling? Do you go to the Lord? Or do you spend money? Or eat certain foods or too much food? Or run to a certain person to try and get the affirmation that they give you? What are you looking forward most to in your life? Is it retirement so that you don't have the burdens of work anymore? Is it the kids being out of the house so that you can have the freedom that you did when you were newlyweds? Is it, uh, maybe if you're a young single, is it being married because your identity is wrapped up in finding a spouse and you just can't imagine a life without a spouse? Who or what do you fear losing? And once you've identified what your idols are, confess them to the Lord and put Jesus back on the throne of your heart and then search the scriptures for ways that you can keep them off the throne and keep Jesus on the throne. Scripture memory can be helpful. I found that to be helpful with my own idols and praying those scriptures and putting off the sinful idol and putting on, to use the language from Colossians 3, putting on the godly behavior instead. So for example, if if your source idol is control, one of the surface idols that produces is fear and anxiety. And so Colossians 3 would tell us to put off fear and anxiety and put on faith, to trust the Lord, to give up control to him. Because real Christ followers walk in the truth so they don't believe lies. Like the lie of comfort and approval and control and power can satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can. So. We know loving idols keeps us from loving Jesus. You can't do both. Let's be that kind of team that does more than just huddle. Let's be that team that executes what we studied and practiced in 1 John, and let's go out on the field and do it. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we must close in prayer because we need your help. John ended his letter with so much truth. It's like a freight train of weight packed with truth, but it's also, it can be overwhelming unless you help us. Thank you, Father, that we can see throughout the scriptures that whatever you ask us to do, you will enable us to do. So Lord, please, would you enable us, by your grace and by your spirit, to walk in the truth to see ourselves and the world and others around us through the lens of Scripture. Would you help us, Lord, to be a light in this dark world? Would you help us, Lord, to hold forth the gospel instead of trying to recruit and convert people to our way of thinking? Would you help us, Lord, to live lives free of idols so that our satisfaction, our security, our identity, our meaning, our purpose in life is wrapped up in only you. Father, I pray just I want to pray for those today that have maybe heard this teaching on idols for the first time. Lord, would you Help them by your Spirit to identify, to reflect, to examine their own hearts so they can discern what it is they love more than you and then dethrone it. Father, there may be some here today or maybe listening to my voice online that have heard the teaching throughout 1 John and have felt convicted that. They have professed faith in Christ, but they don't possess it. Lord, please would you you help them to take that step of faith across the line by demonstrating repentance and inviting Christ into their heart and giving them control of their lives so that they become more than a church goer, but instead a Christ follower. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us through John. Thank you for his encouragement. Thank you, Lord, for his frankness, for telling us what we need to hear instead of what we want to hear. And Father, please, would you now, by your Spirit, bring back to our mind this week things that you want us to remember from today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.